Scripture reading this morning is again going to be Luke 18, verses 18 through 30, the account of uh, Jesus' interaction with a rich young ruler who came to him asking about eternal life. We, we looked at this passage in some detail last Sunday, uh, and this morning I want us uh, to dive a little deeper into uh, things we weren't able to get to last week. And so let us read it together. Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 18. This is the very word of God. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, we do ask for your blessing. We ask that according to your promise, you would not allow your word to return to you void this morning, but that you would be with me as I proclaim it, and that you would be with us as we hear it, that it would have its effect, that it would bring forth life, and that it would cause us to grow, and that it would equip us for service, that, Father, we might bring forth its fruit to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday, I tried to demonstrate that this account is primarily about the gospel. But it's about the gospel by way of the law. You see, in these verses, Jesus presents us a foil. He, he presents us sort of a dark background by which we can see the gospel more clearly. Because in these verses, Jesus presents the rich ruler... Not with the gospel, but with the law. This is obvious enough with respect to Jesus' initial answer to the ruler's question. After all, when the ruler asks Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life, Jesus quotes to him the second table of the Ten Commandments. He he says to him, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. This is, this is what Jesus gives him. He, he points him to the law, and therefore it's, it's obvious. It's, it's beyond dispute that Jesus' first response to the ruler's question is to point him to the law. 
However, my experience, this is not always or, or even often how we read the second part of Jesus' answer. Look again at verse 21. When the ruler hears Jesus' initial answer, do you, do you notice how he responds? He says simply, I, I've been doing this. I've, I've done this since I was a little boy. All these I have kept from my youth. Now when Jesus hears this, he pushes further. He, he, he presses harder. Notice what Jesus says. He says, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Now in my experience, we, we sometimes hear this as, as gospel. We, we sometimes hear this as simply a call to repentance and, and faith personalized for this particular man. However, there's a, there's a problem with reading the text that way. There's a, there's a problem that, that exists not only in our own hearts, but in that very context itself. Because I tried to show you last Sunday that reading the text this way leaves us either crushed or self-confident. If we see ourselves in this rich young ruler and we, we recognize that like him we have time and again walked away from Jesus because we were clinging to our sin, then we will be crushed and, and we will feel that there is no hope for us. But, on the other hand, if, if we see ourselves uh, in the rich young ruler and think that, like him, that we have answered the call, then like him, we will be confident in ourselves. We will, we will think that, that, too, we have kept these from our youth. We have done what was required, and, and we will be confident in our own righteousness because of our own works. Neither response is the humble cry for mercy expressed by the tax collector. Remember him in the, the parable just, just previous to this. Jesus spoke of, of two men who went into the temple to pray. He said one of them stood in the, the center of everyone's attention and, and thanked God for his righteousness, while the other man stood far off with his eyes on the ground, beating his breast, saying simply, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says it was this one who went home justified. It is not possible that, that Jesus can say in, in, one, in one paragraph that only the tax collector went home justified, and then in the next paragraph that, that only those who come as children may enter, and then turn around in the very next moment and say, but you must demonstrate perfect, unqualified devotion to God and, and perfect love of, of neighbor in order to inherit eternal life. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the context. It doesn't fit what Luke has been showing us of, of who Jesus is and what He came to do. And therefore, we must see that Jesus is presenting this man with the law from first to last. The second part of His answer is not a shift to the Gospel, but rather an exposition of the law. The ruler thinks that he has kept the law from his youth. He, he thinks that he's done a, a pretty good job. And Jesus shows him his mistake. He shows him his mistake by exposing his lack of love. His lack of, of love both for, for God and for neighbor. We went into that in some detail last Sunday. If you weren't here, you can, I'm sure, listen to the sermon online. I don't have time to uh, repeat it all this morning. But, but the point is simply this. We must remember that Jesus' command, his, his instruction to this young man to, to sell all, to give to the poor and come follow him, that this command is meant to expose his sin. It is meant to expose his, his failure to keep the law. 
His failure to, to truly love God with all his heart and his neighbor as his self. And we must see this because it is only when we see this that we will truly understand what is going on here. We must see this so that when we see ourselves in the rich young ruler, we are, we are not driven to despair as those without hope, but rather so that we are driven to Christ. Yes, we should despair. Yes, we should recognize the impossibility of our salvation. Yes, we we should recognize that we cannot possibly be good enough. But at the same time, we must hear Jesus say, but what is impossible for man is possible for God. Yes, we we must cry out to God, God, I I cannot keep your law. I cannot earn your blessing. I, I cannot be good enough. Have mercy on me. And we must pray that with a confidence that He will hear, that He will be merciful. Because what is impossible for man is possible for God. God can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that is the central meaning of this text. However, to to say that that is the foremost purpose of what Luke is doing in this this story is not to mean that that is the only purpose. Yes, this this text drives us to to Christ by first driving us to despair. But, But once we have been driven to despair and once we have cried out to God for mercy, there is more that we can learn from what is going on here. We speak about multiple uses of the law. The law not only shows us our sin and our our need for Christ, but there is another use of the law. Once we have acknowledged our our need for Christ, once we have given up all hopes of self-justification, once we have fled to Him for mercy, He points us back to the law, not as a way of, of earning His favor or even keeping His favor, but as a way of of learning the way of righteousness, of learning what it means to to walk in the way of of true and abundant life. You see, the law is not only a mirror that exposes our sin, it is also a lamp and a light to our feet to show us how to walk in God's blessing. And so if last week we used this text as a mirror to to see our sin, this morning I want us to use this text as a lamp, as as a light, to see how we might walk in the ways of life, how we might walk in the ways of righteousness. And there are really two things in particular that I want us to see this morning. The first is the danger of wealth. We want to begin with with the dangers of, of wealth, but then we want to also see the generosity of God. So the dangers of wealth and the generosity of God. Let's begin with the danger of wealth. Look again at verse 23. We're told that when he heard these things, that is when the rich ruler heard the things that Jesus was saying about selling everything and giving to the poor, he became very sad. And why? Luke tells us he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Then in verse 24, we are told, when Jesus saw that he had become sad, he said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And so Jesus himself identifies wealth as the the source or or at least the the, uh, catalyst of this ruler's problem. 
And just in case we missed it, he, he strikes the nail one more time in verse 25. Notice he goes on to say, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And so three verses in a row, Jesus hammers on this idea of, of wealth and the, the dangers of wealth. Now this last phrase that Jesus uses, this this image of a camel going through the eye of a needle, that has been the subject of of considerable debate through the years. Obviously, it is physically impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a literal needle. No matter how hard you try, that's never going to happen. It's, It's hard enough to get a piece of thread through the eye of a needle. It is physically impossible to get a camel through the eye of a needle. And and for that very reason, people say, well, Jesus couldn't have said that. That must not have been what he, what he meant. His, his phrase must have been corrupted or it some, must have been somehow misunderstood. Maybe, maybe Jesus said something other than camel or, or maybe, some people have speculated, maybe there was a gate in Jerusalem that was referred to as the eye of a, of a needle and, and what he's talking about is getting a camel through that gate's really, really hard. The only problem is we, we have no evidence for such a gate. We're not told that such a gate exists in any biblical or extra-biblical source. The truth of the matter is Jesus is saying that it is easier for a literal camel to go through the literal eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to be saved. In other words, Jesus is saying it is impossible. It is impossible for a rich person to be saved. Now let me say as an aside, it's also impossible for a poor person to be saved, but that's a matter for another day. What what Jesus is focusing on here is the dangers of wealth. The the fact that that wealth is is not a a help to overcoming the, the, the things that hinder us from salvation, but actually it is a burden that the sinful heart cannot bear. It is impossible for wealth to help us earn salvation. If anything, hell, wealth hinders us. Of course, we know that Jesus goes on to say that, that God can save sinners. God can save even wealthy sinners. What is impossible for man, God can do. But for now, the focus is on the dangers of wealth. So the question is, why? What is so dangerous about money? What is, what is so dangerous about riches? What is it that makes wealth What is it about wealth that makes it harder for a rich person to be saved? And that's a question we have to wrestle with. We we have to be willing to to face that question head on. Because the fact is, money is an uncomfortable subject. It's not something that we like to to talk about. Most pastors, I know there are exceptions and you see them on TV every week, but, but the reality is most pastors don't like talking about money. We, we don't like to, to bring it up. And, and for the most part, people don't like their pastors to talk about money. They would rather them not bring it up. And so it is easy to just sort of gloss over quickly and move on to other things. But the reality is Jesus talks about money a lot. He spends a great deal of time talking about wealth and, and how it relates to our heart. How it both reveals and, and shapes what goes on in us, And therefore, if we are to walk in the way of righteousness, we need to take the time to hear and to understand and to apply what Jesus is, is telling us here about money. So how do we hear what he has to say? Well, well, think about the flow of the story. Think about how this story has unfolded. If we have read it correctly, 
then Jesus' command, this, this command to sell everything, give to the poor and come and, and follow Him, this, this command is meant to expose the ruler's failure to do what? To, to love God and to love his neighbor. It exposes that he is not fully devoted, that his, that his devotion to God is not unqualified, and it exposes that his, his love for neighbor is, is limited. He does not love his neighbor as himself, but only so far as it is Convenient, And if this is true, if the command is about exposing the ruler's failure to love, then it must be true that the ruler's wealth is a contributing factor. It is, it is, a, it is in some sense the cause of this failure. And I think this is precisely what we are to see. We are meant to see that, as I said, wealth is a burden that the sinful heart cannot bear. We think of wealth as a blessing, but Jesus is showing us that wealth is a burden that we simply cannot bear. The sinful heart is is naturally inclined to to love self above all else. It It is naturally inclined to seek its own interests before those of anyone else. Luther referred to sin as that which curves us in on ourselves. We become self concerned and self absorbed. We we become selfish to the core. And the reality is that we sometimes think that if we had wealth, then it would help us to overcome those selfish tendencies. You ever thought that? Well, if I just had more, I could be more generous. You know, I'd be a much nicer person if I just had a little bit more wealth. I'd be more concerned for others. I'd do more for others if I, if I just had more myself first. We, we think that way, but we're wrong. We sometimes think that, that having wealth would, would set us free from, from our desires to, to provide for ourselves first. But the truth is, the more we have, the more selfish we become. Wealth, rather than freeing us from our selfish bent, actually exasperates the problem. The more we have, the more we seek our own glory and good above all else. The more we have, the the more we believe in our right to do whatever we want. The more we have, the the more energy we we expend thinking about how to protect it and, and keep it. The more we have, the more luxuries become necessities. It's the way the sinful heart works. Wealth doesn't set us free from our selfishness, but it, but it causes it to grow and to put down deep roots. And we must see this. We must see what wealth does to the selfish heart. As Christians, we have been saved by grace apart from works. We, we have been saved apart from our own righteousness. We have been saved because the righteousness of another has been credited to our account. But we must be aware of this reality, not so that we can go and earn what is already ours, but so that we can walk in the life that is has been given to us. Think about how the gospel works. The, the gospel says that, that we who were dead have been made alive, that we may now walk in newness of life. And so we, we have to ask, how do we counter the dangers of wealth? Not so that we can earn what is already ours, but so that we can walk in the fullness of what has been given to us in Christ. So here we are using the law, we are using Jesus' command, not as a test for how we're going to earn what Christ has already earned for us, but we're asking, what does this command teach us? How is it a light to our path? How does it teach us about how to walk in newness of life? 
That's the question that we are asking. Paul says that for freedom, Christ has set you free. And we're asking, okay, how do we walk in that freedom? In Romans, he says, how can those who died to sin still live in it? Our, our old stuff has been crucified with him so that we no longer are enslaved to sin, but now can walk in newness of life. That's what we're asking. How do we do that? How do we walk in newness of life? And how do we walk in newness of life, especially in relationship to wealth? Especially with relationship to our money. And I believe that Jesus' command gives us two principles that help us to to overcome, or at least to to limit the the dangers of wealth. They they help us to avoid the entanglements of wealth that would keep us from running well the race that has been marked out for us. Look again at Jesus' command. He says to the rich young ruler, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. In my experience, when we preach on this text, one of the things we always like to say to people is, don't worry, this command's not for everybody. Not everybody has to do this. This command is not meant to be universally applied, and that is true. It is a command meant for this particular man. The the Scriptures do not command all believers everywhere to sell everything they have and give to the poor. But what does this command reveal to us? What does it remind us of? It reminds us... That ultimately, the rich young ruler is not in charge of his wealth. Ultimately, it is his God standing before him in the person of Jesus Christ who has the right to tell him what to do with what is at his disposal. It reminds us that we are stewards and not owners. See, the only way to avoid the dangers of wealth, the only ways to avoid not being entangled in, in, in wealth and hindered from running the race is just not to possess any We must not possess any wealth. And the reality is we don't. And so we must simply recognize the reality. We are not owners. We are stewards. God is the owner of the cattle on a thousand hills. God is the one who, who owns all wealth. We merely have been entrusted with that which is His, that we might serve His glory by serving the good of our neighbors. We avoid the entanglements of wealth by remembering that the wealth is not actually ours. As I said, this doesn't mean that that we must sell everything we have and and live in in poverty. That's, That's not what's going on here. But we must train ourselves by the power of God's grace to see ourselves as stewards. We must train ourselves to to recognize and to believe and to live as if everything at our disposal has been entrusted to us for God's glory and for the good of others and that we can do with it whatever He commands. That's the reason that that we were were given the wealth. That's the reason we were given life itself, to glorify God and serve our neighbor. And, And the wealth that we have is merely a tool that we are to use in that life to accomplish the purpose for which we were created. Again, this... This doesn't mean that that we must spend as little as possible on our bare necessities. It doesn't mean that we we take a vow of of poverty and and, and give away the the rest. I want you to hear me say this morning that your master does not begrudge you comfort or pleasure. In fact, he gives you good gifts to enjoy. He, he, He delights when you enjoy them. He is glorified when you enjoy the good things that he has entrusted to you. And on top of that, it's actually not wise to give away everything that you have. It's not best for for you or for your neighbor. 
Living in poverty is not actually the best way to help the poor. Actually, spending your money in the economy, buying things, hiring people, these are things that actually help the poor more than any work of mercy that has ever been done. It is, it is good to spend your money. Now, I'm not an economist. I don't want to you know, get into too much detail. I have to be careful at this point. But I, but I want you to see, I want you to remember that God is the one who has, who has placed us in communities where, there's, where there can be division of labor and where you can hire other people to do work and you can buy the goods that they buy. And by actually buying their goods, you can bless them. You've heard me use the illustration before, but there's a, there's a story in uh, the book Radical by David Platt, and I like the book. I recommend the book. It's overall a pretty good book, but, but there's, a, there's an illustration that he uses in there. It's an illustration of one of the Wesley brothers, where, where this Wesley brother comes home from having been at the art dealer, and he bought a painting, and he comes home and notices that the servant who was cleaning his house, that's one sign right there, but you know, the, the servant who had been cleaning his house didn't have an adequate coat for the winter. And he immediately began to berate himself for spending money on this painting when he could have bought his servant a coat. How do you respond to that? I I think there's sort of a gut-level response. Like, oh yeah, we shouldn't have bought that that painting. I should have have given the money away. We we think that sometimes. but, But do you not realize that by buying that painting, he allowed the, the artist to buy his daughter a coat? He allowed the the artist to to provide for his own family. Yes, it is good to do acts of mercy. We're going to talk about that in just a second. It is good to to give generously, but it is also good to participate in the economy. It is good to, to buy things. It is good to spend your income so that others can earn a living. But of course... Having said that, we, we must also say that spending all your money on yourself isn't right either. Yes, it's, it's good to, to spend money, but we do not believe that the free market sanctifies selfishness. Rather, while we may spend some of our income to, to buy things, we must also set aside a portion of our income to give generously to the needs of of others. We must use the wealth at our disposal not only to, to enjoy God's good creation and to, to care for our own needs, but we must use that which He has entrusted to us to serve the good of our neighbor. In fact, this is the second truth that we must learn from Jesus' command. Notice, Jesus doesn't just tell him to get rid of all his wealth, He tells him to get rid of his wealth and give to the poor, <laughs> to, to, to serve those who are in need. And so first, we must remember that we are stewards of God's wealth, that it's not actually ours, that we are not owners. But second, we must remember that as stewards, we have been called to serve the interests of our neighbor, and most particularly, of our neighbors who have the most need, those who are most at risk. Throughout scriptures, it's widows and orphans, it's sojourners and foreigners. It is those who are marginalized, those who are at risk, those who who have the least. We are to to come alongside them. We are to care for them. We are to be concerned for them. And thus, we must train ourselves to see serving others as our calling. And we must see wealth as the tool by which we answer that call. Yes, it is, it is right and good and glorifying to God to enjoy the good things that, that He has given to us. But, but Calvin says that we must live, we must use that wealth moderately. We must live moderately. Not at the end of our means. Not certainly beyond the end of our means. 
But we must live moderately so that we have something to give. It's Paul's command. Work with your hands so that you may eat your own bread and have something to give to those who are in need. So we must give generously out of what has been entrusted to us. We must give first to the work of the church. I know that sounds self-serving for a pastor to say, but it's true. The, the church has been called to make disciples of, of Jesus Christ. And, and you, as, as the church, have the privilege of giving your money to that mission. You can't all be engaged in, in the work in the same way that, that I am, but, but you can use your money to support that work. And you can use your gifts. That's a lesson for another day. We'll be talking about that in Sunday school in a few weeks. Uh, you can use your gifts in the work, in the mission of the church. But you can also use your money to, to support. And, and Paul calls such gifts a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. You can give to the mission of the church, but you can also give to the work of mercy. You can give even outside the church to, to good ministries that are doing good work in your community or around the world. Here at this church, we, we support a few. You see them listed on the back of your bulletin. We, we support the refuge, and we support the caring place, and we support other ministries that are, that are doing good work here in Cleveland and Bradley County, and there are good ministries that are working elsewhere. We support one in Belarus, but, but you may have a heart for another part of the world. You may have a heart for something going on in, uh, in uh, the Caribbean or in South America or in uh, Asia and Japan. You, know, you, you have the opportunity to use that which has been given to you to serve the good of your neighbors both here in Cleveland and around the world. And you don't even have to do it through an agency. Sometimes it's as simple as just opening up your home to a single mom on your street or to an elderly uh, widow on your street, just having them over to to dinner or taking dinner to, to them. Use that which is at your disposal. Use the wealth that has been entrusted to you to serve the good of your neighbor. This is what we are called to. This is the life of a steward and not an owner. And it is this life, it is as, we, as we heed this command, that we will be set free from the entanglements of wealth, that we might run well the race that has been set before us. So let me ask you just simply, when you reflect on your own relationship to money, on your own relationship to wealth, what do you see? How are you doing I've told you before that this is an area of struggle for, for me. I tend to see what's mine as mine. I tend to hoard what is mine. It's, it's my natural disposition. I have to work to see myself as a steward. I have to constantly remind myself of these truths and, and work to, to live as a steward and not an owner. I suspect that most of you do as well. And so... If I'm right, if, if you see yourself in this rich young ruler, if you, if you see in yourself a tendency not to follow Jesus because you're clinging to your wealth, then what do you do? What do you do? Well, I want to remind you of the context. I want to point you back to the tax collector. I want to say that with him, you ought to pray, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, when you see yourself in the rich young ruler, you have seen yourself correctly. You have seen the truth of your own heart. You have seen your own sin. That's what this text is supposed to do. But it's not supposed to leave us there without hope. Rather, it is to remind us that the one who was unrighteous 
The one who was justly condemned entered the temple to pray, saying only, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he went home justified. Do you see yourself in this rich young ruler? Yes. Then go to God and ask for mercy. But remember that when you pray that prayer, you are praying not only for forgiveness, but also for cleansing. You are asking God not only to to take your guilt away from you as far as the east is from the west, but you are asking Him to go to work in your heart, to will and to do that which is pleasing to Him. You are asking Him to, to cleanse you of the heart of an owner and to give you the heart of a steward. And that is the wonder of the Gospel. Hear that. You do not have to bring your righteousness to Him. Rather, you come to Him in your unrighteousness, asking for the righteousness you do not have and cannot possibly muster. You can't make yourself what you need to be. It is impossible. But what is impossible for men is possible for God. And He will go to work if you give up all attempts to earn His favor and simply ask for His mercy. That is the wonder of what this story is all about. And what I want you to see is that the life of generosity, that the life of of giving, it is the good life. It's it's the life you were created for. You were were created to find your joy in in giving rather than receiving. Jesus Himself said it is more blessed to, to give than to receive. But because of our sin... We are persistently selfish. We are persistently self-concerned. Persistently self-serving. And it makes us miserable. It's the the misery of, of sin. But the Gospel of Jesus Christ says that we can come to Jesus for the righteousness we do not have. We can come to Him for the generosity that does not exist in our heart and ask Him to will and to do in us that which is His good pleasure. And He will. He will cleanse those who confess their sins and seek His mercy. He doesn't do it in an instant. He doesn't do it with a snap of a fingers. In His mysterious wisdom, He works slowly. He, he works over time, but He does work. When I look back at my life, 5, 10, 15 years, I can see that I am not the man I used to be. I still struggle in the same areas, but I do not struggle in the same way. As my old pastor used to say, I'm not as successful at sinning as I used to be. God has been at work. He has not only forgiven me, He has begun to cleanse me. The work is not yet complete, but it is in progress. And I can say to you, I know today more of the joy of His salvation than I did before. And by His mercy, I will continue to grow. And one day, He will bring that work to completion. Yes, I am still more like the rich young ruler than I care to admit. And I suspect that most of you could say the same. But when I see myself in Him, I can cry out to God and I can say, God, have mercy on me. 
Not only forgive, but cleanse. Go to work. Change me. Make me the man that You created me to be. Set me free from the slavery of ownership. And give me the freedom of a steward that I might walk in newness of life. That I might live in the joy of Your salvation. And because He promises to do this for each of us, for every rich young ruler, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in Your goodness. We thank You for the grace that You have shown us in Christ. We thank You for calling us out of darkness into light. And we thank You, Father, that You call us while we are yet sinners. We thank You that You love us before we are righteous so that we might become righteous. Father, I pray that this Gospel would put down deep roots in our heart. That, that, that it would fill our minds. That it would fill our hearts. That it would fill our lives with the joy of Your salvation. And that it would set us free to live as stewards and not owners. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.